When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The first biography of Elizabeth I and the first history of Elizabethan England was the Annalis Rerum Anglicarum, known simply as The Annals, written by William Camden and first published, as you may have guessed, in Latin in 1615. It's often been regarded as one of the best sources about the Queen from an impartial eyewitness, although the fact he gets a bunch of things about Anne Boleyn wrong at the beginning should have warned us. Camden also wrote Britannia, which is a county-by-county guide to the ancient and medieval history, geography and topography of England, Scotland and Ireland. He was an antiquarian. He more or less founded the Society of Antiquaries. He was a historian and he was a herald with the title Clarenceau King of Arms. His friends included Philip Sidney, William Cecil, Lord Burley, John Dee and Edmund Spencer. Ben Johnson was his pupil when Camden was headmaster at Westminster School. And, crucially for our purposes today, Camden left his papers and books to his friend Sir Robert Cotton, who created the Cotton Library, which later became the foundation of what was the British Museum, now the British Library. That means that the British Library holds all Camden's manuscript drafts of his annals. In July 2023, it was announced that a team of scholars at the library had uncovered hitherto hidden and self-censored passages in Camden's text. And being able to read them gives us fascinating new insights into Elizabeth I and her era. Some of the scholars in question join me today. At the heart of the action is Helena Rakowska, a DPhil, that's the Oxford word for PhD, student, involved in a collaborative doctorate between the University of Oxford and the British Library under the supervision of Julian Harrison, Dr Alexandra Guider and Dr Neil Younger, and Callum Coburn, curator of medieval manuscripts at the British Library and before that, digitisation officer for the ancient and medieval manuscripts of the British Library, joins us as well. They're going to talk to me about Camden's annals, the manuscript drafts and what new revelations they have found in them. Helena and Callum, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Well, it's very exciting to have the opportunity to talk to you about such an incredible find that clearly has involved an awful lot of work. So let's get going. I suppose the first place to start is 
by introducing people to William Camden. Absolutely. So William Camden, who's probably known most famously for writing The Britannia, which is sort of the first choreographical work of Britain and its antiquities in the Elizabethan period. For me, he's really interesting because he also was the sort of first official historian of Elizabeth I's reign. So Camden himself actually came from sort of a modest family. And actually, he kind of rose up the ranks as a scholar. He was educated at Oxford. And because of that, he was entrusted to write these different works. He also co-founded the Society of Antiquaries with Sir Robert Cotton, who is one of the main founders of the collection at the British Library today. And so they did a lot of antiquarian works there. And then when Camden, who had an amazing sort of relationship with William Cecil, Lord Burley, he appointed him Clarenceau King of Arms in 1597. And that's exactly at the same time when he asked Camden to start writing his annals. So very sort of prolific scholar in his lifetime that somehow has been understudied today and which is why we're doing the PhD project that I'm doing. And what exactly was his annals? So the annals, it's actually named due to it being an analytic history, which was a way of writing history started in the ancient times of basically writing history year by year. And it's similar to the medieval chronicle format that some of your listeners might be used to too. But the idea was basically that Camden wanted or was asked to write a year by year account of Elizabeth's reign and everything that happened in it. So from when she started ruling in 1558, right up until her death in 1603. What was James VI and first role in the creation of the annals? So like I said, originally Lord Burley had commissioned Camden to write the annals, but within a year of that, Burley died and Camden felt, oh, my efforts waxed and waned and he stopped writing it. But what we do know is that when James came to the throne in 1603, Somewhere between 1609 and 1612, he wanted Camden to basically officially start up writing the annals again, because he felt that as of yet, there was no historical account of his mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, who, as we know, was executed during Elizabeth's reign for supposed treachery. So what happened was that James then ordered Camden to start up writing the annals again and finish it which is then why we get the first three books published in 1615 and the final book in 1625, which encompasses the whole reign of Elizabeth I. And Callum, is it right to say that there are multiple manuscript drafts at the British Library? Yes, that's right. There are actually 10 volumes of these drafts. They contain actually multiple drafts that Camden and his scribes completed over a period of years. And they are part of what is known as the Cotton Collection. That was the collection of Sir Robert Cotton, who was an early modern antiquarian and a prolific book collector. And he was also a contemporary and friend of Camden himself. And so they're part of his collection, which went on to become one of the founding collections of the British Museum and ultimately the British Library. I find all that stuff so interesting. It's so interesting thinking about how a library came into being and those of us who work with this period know there's the cotton collection, but it's fascinating to think about the connections between these people and how these documents get stored so that we can see them at this later stage. Completely. I think it's such an insight into Cotton's process in assembling his library, but also how he must have been so connected to the workings of the Elizabethan court and the Jacobean court, because one of the interesting things about 
his collection is that it includes numerous volumes of diplomatic and state papers. And so he must have been connected to people like Cecil to be able to acquire them. Do you think there's anything we should read into the fact that Cotton keeps his friend's drafts in such numbers? Yeah, absolutely. I think, obviously, William Camden like bestowed in his will all of his documents and books, well, most of them, to Robert Cotton first, before, you know, the College of Arms and things like that. So I think to a certain extent, there must have been an expectation of those documents being used by Cotton afterwards. But I don't know whether Camden really expected them to stay and then become part of the National Library today. So I think that's really fascinating. Now, one thing we should say about Camden is that he's become a kind of byword for impartiality. He's seen by historians almost as one of the first modern historians, reliable, broadly accurate, uh, and someone one can turn to as a kind of authority. Is that fair? I think basically in the historiography, at least, you know, definitely in the 20th century, we see that sort of view. So we see Camden has in his preface pretty much made all those claims that he is being as accurate as possible, that he is impartial, that he will neither speak well of his friends nor badly of his enemies. But I think what's happened is because he's also had access to all these primary records, a lot of historians have assumed, well, because he had access to them, he probably recorded them word for word exactly, which makes it more like how we practice history today. But actually, I think what's got lost is the fact that just because he had access to those records does not mean that he reproduced them perfectly. And that's part of what my project at the moment is trying to figure out. He definitely is reproducing some of it, but it's, you know, what angles and where he decides to be more faithful that is really interesting. So I think there has definitely been some more recent scholarship that has really emphasised how King James I was his patron, so that naturally would have affected the spin of the annals. But no one as of yet really has gone through all the material evidence that we have available, which is the 10 Faustina F volumes, Camden's and Cotton's correspondence, and all of those official records to really be able to substantiate how biased perhaps Camden was. So here we come to this great discovery, 55 hidden pages uncovered. Callum, a technical question first. How have you done this? So I suppose it began really with a digitisation project. We'd been always wanting to digitise these volumes and make them available to our readers and to promote further research on this topic. But really, it was only when Helena completed her analysis of the volumes as part of her PhD research and alerted us to the fact that there are these pasted paper notes that appear throughout the volume covering portions of text that we started to wonder how we could go about revealing that text and whether there were means through enhanced imaging technology that we have at the library to be able to facilitate it. And so what resulted was a collaboration between our team and the British Library's imaging studio and myself and Eugenio Falcioni, who is the senior imaging technician at the library. We did a series of tests on a number of the volumes and experimented with different techniques. So we used infrared and ultraviolet at first to see if that would make a difference. And we had no luck there. 
But then we realized that because both the pages and the notes were both made of paper and there's an innate transparency in that material, we could use what we call transmitted light. So light from a light sheet that's inserted into the volumes and the pages overlaid. And when you turn on the light, the whole page is illuminated and suddenly multiple layers of text are revealed. And yet it seems to me on hearing that, that it may still have been difficult to read the different layers of paper. Is that not right? Yes, I think that is definitely true. And so another element to this was also not just about revealing that there was text there, but also the ability to distinguish between the different layers of text. Because as Helena will attest, there's multiple layers of text going on and interweaving, and it would be very difficult to read. So what we did was actually to take two images, one of the front of each page and one of the back. And what we realized is that what is ostensibly the lower level of text, the text that's beneath the pasted note on one side, would actually become the upper level of text and much clearer on the other. And then when we flipped that so that it would read from left to right, suddenly all of this text was actually legible and crisp and clear. Oh, so exciting. And this is a lot of text, isn't it? I mean, you've said it's 55 pages. Can you give me some sort of sense of what that is in either number of words or, you know, what size these sections are? So we have 4,050 folios, which is a heck of a lot of folios that are just sort of made up of the manuscript drafts themselves. And then what we first realised was there are actually 200 pages with paste downs. And the reason why we then managed to determine that there are about 55, although actually, if I'm being more precise, it's 55 case studies where it's between maybe a paragraph to two or three pages. So I haven't quite figured out the, the right amount yet, but it's about 55 different sort of sections of those 4,000 folios that have at least one layer of text. Because like Callum said, sometimes there are two or three paste downs on top of each other. So then that naturally adds the word count. So I can't give you a precise word count per se, but I think what's really important to sort of highlight here is that it's not just about reading the original text for the first time. Every year of the annals has at least two to five different versions of text in it that is visible to the naked eye. So there have been times where just by trying to figure out a paragraph of original text, I have had to go to every other version that is available in the manuscript drafts, which is sometimes five more versions, plus the two printed versions in Latin. So just from trying to analyze five little sentences, you end up with five, six, seven times that amount. And that is one case study out of 55. This doesn't sound like a defil. It sounds like a lifetime's work, Helena. Are you prepared for this? <laughs> I think this is what the most fascinating part of my project has been, is I kind of came in and I already knew it would be a mammoth task because even just in those 4,000 folios that are visible to the naked eye, most of them have some sort of correction, some sort of revision. So I always knew I would never be able to do all of it during the defil. But I am really excited and I'd like to basically encourage other people also to get involved in Camden. He's been notoriously understudied and there clearly is so much to work on. So I'm prepared to keep going definitely after my DPhil. But I think it's also been a really lovely way to highlight how we need to do more work on Camden in general. 
Well, let's get into the sort of things you're finding and people will begin to understand why you're willing to put this level of effort in. So I guess what we could say as a blanket statement, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a form of doctoring, a form of self-censoring or self-correcting of his voice that we see in these pasted on sheets. Is that correct? I would definitely describe it that way. Sometimes it's actually what's been interesting, and we've only really been able to discover this thanks to the enhanced imaging, is that it's not necessarily always self-censorship. I do think actually Camden was just sometimes trying to recycle paper and trying to make sure that his narrative made sense in the order it did. It's not like they had Microsoft Word or any word processing tool where he could cut multiple statements and just place them where he needed to. And that's where sometimes these paste downs have been really useful and why, for example, with that transmitted photography, we've been able to see, oh, there's not actually any text underneath that particular one. It just happened to be that Camden needed to paste that section in his narrative there for it to make sense to him. But yeah, a lot of other times it absolutely is censorship. And when you know the context that he was writing in, it makes sense why he would be particularly wary about including certain information that we have now been able to see for the first time. So what have you been able to see for the first time? Let us into some secrets here. So I feel like for me, one of the most important discoveries has been all about King James himself, who obviously was, during most of Elizabeth's reign, a prince in Scotland, then King James VI of Scotland. And only on Elizabeth's death did he obviously get onto the English throne. But all throughout his time as monarch at Scotland, even though it was never officially named a successor, it was always something that he was hoping to come to, especially once it was obvious that Elizabeth, the older she was getting, she was unmarried, childless, she wouldn't have her own successor. So I've been fascinated, for example, to look at rumours about James I. So for example, in 1598, a man called Valentine Thomas alleged to kill Queen Elizabeth I on James' command. And what's been really interesting is through sort of unpeeling the different layers we've been able to see that Camden originally was going to write that story just as it was, showing that basically Valentine Thomas had legally testified to committing murder against or trying to commit the murder of Queen Elizabeth I. What you're saying is that James VI of Scotland, son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who has been executed on Elizabeth's order, is sending an order to assassinate Elizabeth I. Testament to this by Mm -hmm. Valentine Thomas. Yes, absolutely. And thanks to sort of more recent scholarship by the likes of like Elizabeth Tunstall, we see that in the correspondence. But this was very much something that James wanted covered up. He was constantly sending letters to Elizabeth. It's very paradoxical. He wanted to be completely declared innocent and yet he wanted the whole thing covered up. So it didn't quite make sense. He was clearly very angry and scared about what it could do to his reputation, especially as a potential successor. And I think it's just really interesting that by the time Camden is writing, where James is securely on the throne, he still feels the sort of compunction to change that narrative. So we see between the different drafts, him going from saying Valentine Thomas legally testified to murder to simply saying Valentine Thomas had a malicious mindset against the Queen or And it's just completely softening that language. And there's no mention of murder. And obviously, I just find that really fascinating, considering that 
this was a rumor long gone that perhaps it was still too sensitive to record it in its factual entirety. So in other words, we have here the patron of the annals by the early 17th century, James I's influence on Camden. So he's shaping his narrative in a way that isn't going to annoy the person who's paying for the work to be done. Absolutely. But it's also interesting because the cover-ups reveal that it wasn't just the patron that Camden was trying to protect their legacy for various reasons. Something that I really didn't expect to find was the first ever draft of King Philip of Spain's death was underneath an entirely different section. That's been interesting. You think that you're seeing the original text that's related to the text on top of it for the very first time. But there have been definitely a few instances where it's completely something else. And so just by chance, I happened to see the obituary of King Philip II for the first time, who was Elizabeth's arch nemesis. And yet what we find is that originally Camden felt clearly some loyalty to England and had decided to say that King Philip had, quote, no imperial skills. And yet he decides to get rid of that in his subsequent versions of the draft And you wonder why he felt the need to protect the arch nemesis of Elizabeth and his legacy. But then you realise it's perhaps because even though we now know that Camden, like most of us, could not be impartial on everything, he was trying to present himself as an impartial historian. It's just fascinating that in the various different versions of the obituary as well, we see Camden toying with the idea of showing that King Philip had died from theriasis which was a disease which would cause parasites to explode in the body. And it was seen as divine punishment at the time. And we see him in every draft, apart from the last, including that information, but then he crosses it through and it doesn't make it into the printed version. So, you know, we're finding all these sort of different facts where most people haven't been able to determine what King Philip specifically died from. And here is Camden potentially giving us an answer. That's fascinating. But also I'm fascinated by the fact you've given us two case studies so far, one in which Camden is changing the language to make it actually less accurate. Mm. Well, in both cases, I suppose they're less accurate. But in the second case, it's to remove his bias. Whereas in the first case, he's actually obfuscating his changes. So we've got kind of different purposes at work Mm -hmm. here. They're not just about pleasing this patron. They are also about, okay, I'm going to make this more impartial. I'm going to just cover up this thing I know to be true. So there's a kind of contradiction, a paradox here. I see that to some extent, but then I think it's really important to perhaps contextualise how perhaps differently history was seen in the Elizabethan period to what it is now. We're always now looking for the facts. We want what 100% happened accurately. Whereas actually the genre of history in some ways was much more an exercise of trying to teach virtue and trying to show how to avoid vice. And so even though accuracy is obviously somewhat important, I think more importantly to Camden was having a sort of record that could be used in a pedagogical sense I think that's where we see those tensions where sometimes where is it actually more useful to cover something up to teach a good lesson versus not. So I think that's also something interesting to consider that I hadn't quite realised when I first started my project.
Why were medieval priests so worried that women were going to seduce men with fish that they'd kept in their pants? Who was the first gay activist? And what on earth does the expression sneezing in the cabbage mean? I'll tell you, it's not a cookery technique, that's for sure. Join me, Kate Lister, on Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast where we will be bed-hopping throughout time and civilization to bring you the quirkiest and kinkiest stories from history. What more could you possibly want? Listen to Betwixt the Sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. A podcast by History Hit. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I also want to ask about the all-important question of Elizabeth I's deathbed. Uh, because it seems that you've got new information on that particular version that Camden gives. Yes. So, I mean, that's been incredibly exciting as well. So to set the scene, the deathbed scene is pretty much the last big scene of the annals. Obviously, it's interesting. We say it's an analytic history, but it has now got the reputation of more being a history about Queen Elizabeth I herself. Because, you know, Camden could have finished all of the events in 1603. She died in March. But no, he decides to end the history with her death. And so in the printed version, we see a sort of quite beautifully dramatic scene where her counsellors, afraid of not knowing still at her deathbed who was going to succeed her, she supposedly says to them that it had to be the King of Scots. Who else could it be? And this is a beautiful sort of direct speech wow, that's incredible to have that sort of knowledge in a history like this. So from the point of view of the historian reading it, we're we're thinking, amazing, we've got Elizabeth I's deathbed words. These are, you know, her last words, her last wishes. Finally, she confirms that she wants James to inherit the throne. Absolutely. That's always been sort of a really well-known account, and it has been used and sort of believed by a lot of people since. But actually... Once you get to the manuscript drafts, there is a cover-up in one of these. There's three different draft versions. 
You see that in the original version, this was completely omitted. There was nothing about councillors going to Elizabeth on her deathbed. It was very much just a small eulogy for Elizabeth, where actually it was quite, it's really wonderful. It says that no one is really going to be able to fill her shoes. And then you see clearly, perhaps by looking at the revisions in the later drafts, that this wasn't going to be good enough for his patron. It was thanks to Elizabeth's death that James was on the throne and he always had wanted it to look like it had been a smooth transition, even though now we know it wasn't. And so what we see is then in a second draft, this huge amendment that is so ginormous that Camden has to write a little symbol in the margins and put it on a separate sheet of paper. There are loads of crossings out, but you can see him really trying to plan how do I make this convincing, namely the fact that King James I was ordained as king by Elizabeth on her deathbed? And that's where we see the sort of fabricated speech laid out for the first time. And then we see then in the later versions, as well as the printed version that we all know, that speech just being subsumed in there as if it was always meant to be in there and it actually wasn't. So historians have already been able to say that actually Elizabeth was too ill to speak on her deathbed. We've had different evidence contradicting Camden's account. But I think what's really exciting about this research is it's showing that actually all we needed to do as well was look at the manuscript drafts themselves. It was always in there. Callum, in history, we often talk about things like the cultural turn and the literary turn. It feels like we've got the digital turn now. Digital technologies are changing history, aren't they? I think so. I think definitely. I think we're in this really wonderful privileged position where this year we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the founding of the British Library. And of course, these manuscripts have been in the collections of the British Museum for hundreds of years before that. And we've been custodians of these to look after them and to continue to research them. And many of these manuscripts, particularly in the Cotton Collection, have been dramatically affected by different types of damage. Of course, many of the Cotton manuscripts were burnt in the Ashburnham House fire in 1731, which left many of them blackened and completely illegible. But yes, right now we're at this point where these kinds of developing technologies can have an application in our field and we can actually use them to reveal text for the first time, to read it for the first time, particularly in the case of Helena's project, read text that hasn't been read since Camden wrote it hundreds of years ago. And that's incredibly exciting. Do you think there's anything that technology can do about any of those charred edges of manuscripts and rat-eaten or water-damaged? Very much so. I mean, other projects that are currently ongoing at the library have used multispectral imaging to literally reveal the text that lies beneath them. We can do a huge amount of work to reconstruct those damaged manuscripts. And I think one of the perceptions of the Cotton Collection is always to look upon it sadly, to think, oh, how awful, how much have we have lost? But I think at this point, I certainly think about it in a completely different way. Look how much more there is for us to learn and look how much more for there is for us to read. And now that we have the technology to do that, we are in a position to be able to do that through these kinds of digitization projects. That's amazing. I certainly know that in my work, I'm always coming across things where we can't read it because of the fire. And we're looking for people who wrote it down in 1714 or whatever, so that we can read a transcript. So this is very exciting stuff because that doesn't always exist. I wanted to ask you, Helena, also about translation. As you said, these are all in 
Latin, all the original manuscripts. Camden doesn't write this in English, is that correct? Camden actually, in his correspondence, we've been able to specifically see that he never wanted the annals translated into English during his lifetime. And he quite rudely says, knowing how unjust carpers the unlearned readers are. So I think that's obviously, again, context is important. To be educated in early modern England was to be classically trained. So you were taught Latin, ancient Greek all throughout your school years. And this was a passion for a lot of people specifically Camden, also well into his adulthood. So what's been really interesting is that there has been no complete English translation of the annals since the 17th century. It is a ginormous piece of work. So a lot of historians who don't have the classical skills, because quite frankly, especially in Britain today, that's not something that we don't have access to as easily as they did. A lot of people today have had to rely on the English 17th century translations But the issue is, is those translators had their own agendas and they had their own ways of looking at what Elizabeth's reign was like and, you know, had their own sort of specific messaging. And I think what's happened is that because we've been neglecting the Latin draft manuscripts and the Latin account, we're potentially missing things that Camden would have hoped his own classically trained audience would see. Interesting. So are there places, examples that you can bring to mind where... What you often see in histories of Elizabeth is quoting English texts, English versions of this, where actually a return to the Latin manuscripts gives us a different perspective. I've done a predominant amount of work on Camden's preface itself, actually, because that's a place where a lot of historians have gone precisely to say, look, Camden is stating himself as an impartial historian, being factually accurate, etc., etc. And actually what's been phenomenal is... Already in the preface, he states that he is very much following ancient historiographical practices of the likes of Tacitus and Polybius. What's even more amazing is that just by sort of really honing down on the details of this Latin preface, I've seen a lot of Latin sentences that historians have claimed to be Camden's own words, but through sort of a close analysis of those sentences with other Latin authors, such as Tacitus, Polybius, Livy, we've been able to see that those quotes are just from other ancient authors instead. So that means we have to be really careful when we're looking at the narrative itself. And that's something that I'm particularly interested in as well, is looking at some of these episodes. Of course, just during my PhD project, I won't be able to analyse the entirety. But just keeping that in mind that Camden was quoting other authors. And that could really change how we see certain events if you know that actually this is mirroring an episode from Tacitus Annals or Polybius's histories. In fact, it feels like the clue is in the title. The fact that he has called it Annals or Annales for Tacitus in itself indicates something to us because Tacitus makes this claim to impartiality but in actual fact is giving often a very biased view. So do you think that in your work on the translations and finding these classical antecedents and also in this wonderful work of using light to discover what these pages say, you're actually changing our view of Camden. Are you in some ways downgrading his status an impartial historian by suggesting that his claim to impartiality was actually just part of his flattering rhetoric. 
I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. But I think it wouldn't be fair to Camden himself to necessarily say that because whilst he is making those claims in his preface, he's also at the same time saying things like, I'm only a smaller writer of great affairs. And he talks about precisely there is a Tacitian quote that he uses. And at least at this particular moment, he says that great standard bearer of history says this. So at least we know he's quoting Tacitus, although, yeah, there are many times where he just doesn't make that obvious. But he says secret things that princes do, I'm not going to necessarily inquire into. So I think it wouldn't be fair to to Camden to say, that we are catching him out because I think he's tried to make that clear that actually I've always been a historian that is taking my methodology from other ancient historians and we all know what that means at least again he thinks that because he thinks his audience is a classically trained audience so I think it's just to make a bit of pun of it I think we're just enhancing what he already wanted us to know with these enhanced imaging techniques. In other words he expected his audience, one, to know, yes, of course, I'm going to make up speeches because Tacitus did, and that's what a historian does. And two, yes, of course, I'm going to lift from other people because that's a way of showing emulation and not, as we would understand it, a form of plagiarism. Absolutely. So, for example, something I found really fascinating as well was that just the order of the preface and the way that sometimes he overtly includes a quote from an ancient historian or maybe doesn't, it seems to be completely lifted from the methodology of Justice Lipsius's Politica. Basically, it was a commonplace book written all about trying to teach rulers how to do good government. And it's actually been now seen as perhaps an apologia of reason of state-based rule, i.e. this idea of, oh, we can do morally questionable things if it's going to benefit the state. And I find that really interesting that in Justice Lipsius Politica, we see him in an appendix write about how a person writes a good history. And he uses all these quotes from ancient historians to justify how to do that. He says what's really important is to have truth All these things that basically, once you put the preface and this excursus side by side, you can see that Camden is pretty much lifting that. And I don't think that's something that he would necessarily think would be frowned upon. If anything, it would show, look, this amazing scholar who, by the way, Justice Lipsius was sort of the leading scholar of Tacitus in his day. I'm following exactly what he's saying on how to write good history. I think that's what's really interesting there. Overall then, so far, I understand there's lots more to be done. This is a work in progress. But so far, what new information do you think this gives us on Elizabeth the first reign? The devil's in the details. I think we get a lot of new, limited bits of information that can actually shed so much light on things that have just felt underexplored or just unknown. So little things like King Philip's death. There is no current, I think, scholarship. I might be wrong there. I'd love if someone could tell me that they found a source that says also King Philip died of theriasis. But a lot of the times it's been very much these little details where we're like, oh, we know he died of an illness, but we don't know what. And so we get these sort of amazing small details coming through from Camden being really initially a bit more broad with what he's saying and then more careful. 
And I think that they can really help paint a fuller picture of all these different, not only historical figures, but what happened to them and different events. And as you say, it's a work in progress. But just even yesterday, I was going through Bothwell's rebellions against King James when he was still King James VI of Scotland. And I'm finding all these new details that I wouldn't have necessarily discovered before. And that was just yesterday. So it's one of those things where hopefully what will happen is in the next year and a half, I'll be able to go through even more of these different case studies. And I'd like to think that what will happen is that we'll just get perhaps a slightly fuller picture of various figures and events in Elizabethan history. Callum, to use a nice sort of Tudor word, wither digital technologies, where are we going from here? What's next? I think that the possibilities with these kinds of digitization projects are really endless. Certainly within the cotton collection, there are lots of examples of manuscripts where we could apply this technology to. And I think that's one of the things that we were most excited about when we first saw all of this text revealed. But I think in general, that through digitization, one of the amazing things that we can do is to build up this picture, as Helena says, of the collections of cotton and also Camden. And we can play around with looking at the makeups of those libraries and those collections, we can have a broader sense of how those collections came together and of the kind of the nuances as well of those people's lives. Actually, just listening to Helena speak just now, the things that I was really struck by was the sort of apparent dangers in antiquarianism during that period. The fact that Camden and Cotton were both treading this really interesting fine line between politics and assembling their collections. And one of the things that we know about Cotton, of course, is that in 1629, he's actually imprisoned by Charles I because it's believed that he's allowing his collection to be used for the assembly of anti-monarchy sentiments. And the collection is confiscated from him and he's imprisoned and he spends the rest of his life trying to get it back. So it's kind of interesting to see how Projects like these shed light on those worlds and the origins of those collections. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for giving us an insight into this amazing piece of work, monumental piece of work, and we look forward to hearing more. Thank you so much. Thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast and please rate rank bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen including on spotify it really helps more people find not just the tutors history is full of extraordinary people the tutors being just a handful in my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.